Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends, and what they all have in common is they have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Terry. Terry's going to tell me where and when he was born, and he's going to describe what it was like, where he grew up, the schools he went to, and the education that he received. Okay, Terry, off to you. Thanks, Tim. My name is Terry Thiel, and I was born in 1954 in a small town, Bedford, Ohio, in the States, uh, just outside of Cleveland. And uh, my upbringing... Uh, I'd say was uh, pretty standard for American Midwestern families of the time. Uh, I uh, had two brothers, one uh, seven years older, one seven years younger. Uh, And uh, living in that small town, going to the local public schools, um, if you're at all familiar, there's a famous illustrator, Norman Rockwell, who uh, used to do the cover uh, paintings for the Saturday Evening Post, which was an American uh, magazine during the 40s through the 70s. And uh, Rockwell was well known for picking the sort of idyllic, quintessential American scenes. And I sometimes think I was raised in a Norman Rockwell illustration. Uh, it was uh, uh, pretty um, idyllic. Uh, I had the good fortune uh, to attend a private boys' school uh, as a scholarship student uh, from in, in the states, the grades nine through twelve, and uh, that made an enormous impact on me uh, because, in some respects, it introduced me to a, uh, a socioeconomic class in America that uh, my parents didn't belong to. Uh, and that, that was a, uh, an invaluable learning experience in and of itself. Uh, I uh, spent one year at the United States Military Academy uh, uh, going after high school, uh, but I elected to resign because I discovered uh, the academy had let me in on a waiver on my eyesight. Uh, but I rapidly discovered during bayonet training that they had made a mistake. Uh, I had my glasses knocked off and uh, was promptly beaten to death <laughs> because I couldn't see my attacker. Uh, so I ultimately did wind up in the uh, United States Army Reserves, but I, I did not graduate from West Point. Um, instead, I transferred to Princeton University. Uh, which is a liberal arts uh, school, and studied history. And uh, upon graduating from Princeton, um, it's one of those classic things, you don't quite know what you're going to do with your life. And I uh, stood in front of a mailbox with two envelopes. And one envelope was to apply to work on an archaeological dig on Hadrian's Wall. And the other was to take the necessary tests to go to law school. So you could tell I uh, was uh, very confused as to what I was going to do next. 
but I eventually wound up going to New York University School of Law and uh, received my JD in 1979. And uh, then I started in on my uh, career. And uh, at the time, 1979, uh, well, I had been raised in the Cold War. Uh, that was a period where at any given moment, uh, the world could come to an end. I, I don't think young people today appreciate that. Uh, and I got a job working in the United States Treasury Department's legal office. And over the next 11 years, worked for the government, first at Treasury, uh, where I got into national security work. And uh, being in national security, I wound up working at the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and my final posting was in the executive office of the president uh, during the end of the Reagan administration and the beginning of the Bush administration. And uh, it's, a, it's a classic case. It sort of speaks to why I wrote my book. When you, you start your career and you think you know what you're going to do, um, and I enjoyed working in national security very much. I enjoyed the people I worked with. I enjoyed the mission. Uh, it, it felt like it was something that was worth doing. And at the time, I figured, well, there's always going to be a Cold War, so I've got a career. I'll do this forever. Well, of course, in 1989, um, the uh, Berlin Wall comes down, and in 1990, the flag comes off of the Kremlin. Uh, and at, at that point, uh, all of the uh, appropriations for uh, intelligence work uh, vanished. Uh, and I, I discovered uh, that, in fact, there wasn't always going to be a call where we actually won. Uh, so I tell people it's a natural career progression from fighting the Cold War to going to work for a refrigerator manufacturer, uh, which I did. I went and worked for General Electric uh, for a number of years uh, doing government relations, regulatory and environmental work. Uh, after that, I uh, spent uh, five years, four or five years working for AB Electrolux, a Swedish conglomerate, again, another appliance manufacturer, uh, doing regulatory work, which by definition, a lot of it was environmental. And then finally, um, spent 20 years in a uh, specialty chemical company, uh, Lubrizol Corporation. Uh, that manufactures basically molecules. Uh, there isn't a car out on the street that doesn't have Lubrizol chemistry in it. Uh, we, it Lubrizol would sell it to the major oil companies. Um, and again, I was doing strategic planning, regulatory type work uh, for Lubrizol over those 20 years. Uh, in 2018, I um, sort of semi-retired and uh, I've been teaching, uh, doing some consulting work. And I finally got around to writing my book, uh, which I'd been thinking about for the preceding 40, 50 years. <laughs> and that's how I got to where I am today. Okay. So what I'd like to do is just to take you back now and um, look at some of the stuff that you did. So 
we brushed over your school years fairly quickly. So, so what do you do in high school? What high school did you go to? Was it was it you went to a, a, a um, you got a it was a private school. boys school in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, University School was its name. Uh, active in sports, although I wasn't very good. I played soccer, uh, year football, and uh, uh, baseball and and track. But so I was a mediocre athlete. Got your scholarship in? Yes, I did. Uh, it, it was an academic scholarship. Actively involved in high school theater, and uh, in high school the uh, uh, student body. The political system, you know, I was I wound up actually being president of my class. Hey, <laughs> I guess that that's something that um, quite a lot of kids aspire to. Well, uh, it was it's a small it was a small school. Uh, we only had a I want to say eighty six boys in my graduating class, um, and. Uh, Again, it was it was interesting because I came from a uh, what I would consider a very middle class background. And at the time, most of the students in this school were from a, a, a wealthier uh, segment of the population. Uh, so for me, uh, I learned a lot in the classroom, but I also learned a lot just uh, from uh, being in that uh, socioeconomic environment. It, it was a, it was a real departure. <laughs> so, so at the end of that, once you graduated, you say you went to West Point. I did. And, I uh, went for for one year, but the the problem there was I I simply didn't feel that that physically be given my eyesight notwithstanding the fact that they had given me a waiver um, that I could operate. Well, it, here's the situation. You're a second lieutenant in charge of a platoon and you're out in the middle of the woods uh, and you're responsible for keeping these guys alive. And I get my glasses knocked off and I'm <laughs> not, not worth much of anything to anybody <laughs> at that point. Uh, and I, uh, it, it just, it, it wasn't fitting uh, in, in into what I thought I could accomplish, and and so I uh, uh, resigned my commission. Uh, now, subsequently, I did participate in the U.S. Army Reserve as a uh, as a lawyer, as a what they call a, a judge advocate general. So I spent 15 years in U.S. Army Reserve uh, as a as a JAG lawyer. So, so can I just take you back to to West Point? So, the the year you went in, and um, what was the curriculum like at that time? Because I guess it was a two two year college course, four year, four year, four, four uh, years uh, uh, academic, uh, very analogous to our uh, civilian universities in terms of the curriculum. Uh, so we're heavy on engineering. Uh, it was a it was a bachelor of science, not a bachelor of arts degree. Uh, but I was taking engineering, uh, math, language, English, history, uh, and and of course military science. Uh, but more or less the same sort of curriculum that you would see uh, at uh, a pu American public university. Oh, but for basic training in the summer, 
uh, and all of the military uh, uh, laid laid on top of everything else. Yeah, so so you've got the normal sort of academic curriculum that you'd yeah. get at a normal university. Yeah. Um, so I guess you were paid for because you, you were essentially um, in the military. So yes, uh, actually, my my parents weren't particularly enamored with the thought uh, that I uh, that I resigned my commission because I was getting half a second lieutenant's pay while I was at West Point, and then I proceeded to go to Princeton University, which at the time, nineteen seventy three, the tuition was five six thousand dollars, which was. <laughs> quite a hefty chunk of change at the time. So from a financial standpoint, they weren't too happy with me, but. Uh... <laughs> so I guess if you'd have done like the four years at, at West Point, you would have had to sign on for, for at least four years, is it, after that? At service? the time, if you, if you stayed for a minimum of two years, as soon as you completed that second year, you picked up, a service obligation and at the time it was for an additional five years of service is my recollection hmm. uh, but of course most of my classmates uh, would stay to become career officers um, the irony uh, the ultimate irony in it all is is then going to work for the treasury department and then working in national security I was selected to attend the National War College in 1986-87, full-year program populated by Army colonels, Air Force colonels, lieutenant colonels, Navy captains, State Department foreign service officers, and a, a sprinkling of uh, participants from intelligence community agencies like Treasury, which was which was why I was attending. And and the the ultimate irony was that I discovered once I got there, and I, of course at the time I was in the Army Reserves, which really had nothing to do with my my day job. I, I went into the War College as a as a first lieutenant in the Army Reserves as a JAG officer. And uh, I discovered that I had beaten my West Point class to the War College by 10 years, that my classmates at West Point wouldn't get there for another decade. Uh, so I short-circuited the process. Uh, and, uh, of course, no one really at the War College knew what to do with me because I was the one guy from the Treasury Department. And most everyone else acted and appeared senior to me. And uh, at at the end of the year, um, I, as it turned out, I was promoted to captain in the Army Reserves. And so I asked the commandant, uh, uh, Navy Admiral, and, and during the course of the year, many of the my classmates who had received promotions had their promotions recognized in the auditorium at the beginning of the day, uh, pr promotion ceremony. So the very last week of school, I show up. I've been I've been the Treasury Department guy the whole time. They don't know who I am or where did he come from. And the very last week of school, I show up in uniform as, as a first lieutenant 
because that day I was going to have my promotion ceremony at the War College to captain. Of course, everybody right then do well. Now I know where you fit. <laughs> uh, clearly, I know where you fit now. <laughs> so all the time you're going to be making the tea for them. Exactly, you know. All the way through. Would you go get my car? You know. <laughs> so I just want to take you back slightly. So you you, you resign your commission in uh, West Point, and um, how soon after did you transfer into the reserves? Well, I I went into the reserves uh, the first year I was working at the Treasury Department uh, because. In, in effect, what I was doing is I was entering the Judge Advocate General Corps, the, the lawyers of the Army. And so I had to complete uh, my education and be uh, past the bar and, and become a lawyer before I could become a JAG officer. So I, I left West Point in 73 finished college, finished law school, and then I entered the Army Reserves in 1979, I think it was, 1979 or early 80, uh, when I first started working, because at that point I was now a lawyer, uh, and uh, I'd be accepted in, in, the, in the JAG court. So that's what you were doing? You were doing your law degree there? No, Princeton was strictly undergraduate. That was uh, I spent three years at Princeton. I got a Bachelor of Arts in History, and then I went to law school and spent three years in law school in New York. So it was a it was a six year period between leaving West Point and when I uh, started employment at the Treasury. And and your parents sort of funded you through this all the way through, or well, I was working too, but <laughs> yes, there was a. There was a certain amount of begrudged funding going on. <laughs> well, they did have you after all, didn't they? They it was their fault. So you know, if you didn't want to do this, you shouldn't. Have, you know, once you start down the road, you got to finish the journey. <laughs> so seventy nine, then you joined the um, the reserves. You went in as an as an officer for a uh, second lieutenant. Yeah. So, so what was the training like for that? Did you have to go back to do a, a short course at, at West Point? Or? Well, actually, no, because I had completed basic training at West Point. And so that prior experience, in effect, qualified me for receiving a commission without having to go on active duty for any period of time. And uh, I spent the next 15 years basically, you know, reservists are, are sort of known as weekend warriors. Yeah. You you are in a particular unit uh, and you'll go for, a, you know, over the weekend and then for uh, a month or two in the summer on and off. And and so and the, and the challenge, of course, was at the same time I was working in national security in my civilian job, which in some respects, took precedence over anything I would be doing in the reserves. Uh, so I wound up with scheduling problems all the, all the time. Uh, and, and then ultimately, uh, having attended the National War College as a civilian ruined, really ruined my reserve career because there is a natural progression in, in the American military 
as you progress in rank, you also progress through different schools. So there is the Army, there's the Command and General Staff School, there's the Army War College. So there's a sort of a pyramid of, of schools that you would attend as you increased in rank. And when you became a lieutenant colonel or a colonel in the Army, then you would be considered, if you were one of the select, to go to the National War College. Well, here I am as a first lieutenant in the National War College. So after I graduated, uh, the, the, the people that were responsible for handling all the reservists, they really didn't know what to do with me because as I went for first lieutenant, then I became a captain. Well, I, I, there's not much point in sending you to the Army War, National, you know, Army War College or Commander General. You've already done the National War College. We're not going backwards. We can't, you know, so we'll just put you over here in the corner, you know, and we'll worry about you later. So that's more or less what happens. So you say go from captain straight up to colonel. <laughs> it didn't work out. <laughs> or at least they didn't see it that way. So. Yeah. So, so you kind of did fifteen years, pretty much as a captain, then. Yeah. And 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 why did you leave? Well, it it simply got to the point where this was in the nineties. I'd been in for fifteen years. Basically, it was family um, issues. I had uh, three kids. I was working in a in at the time. I was working for General Electric, doing a lot of travel. Mm. And uh, just the, I wasn't going anywhere with the uh, with you know with the reserve career, and uh, it became uh, too much of a hassle in in some respects. Uh, I, I don't didn't think I was contributing much, and and I wasn't getting much out of it. So I figured it was a good time to make make room. For, oh, and the other thing was the army at the time was was trying to winnow down the number of reserve officers so we came to a mutual yeah. agreement that uh, I had I had served my time and uh, I should go find something else to do yeah, well, did you do any operational tours at all in in your time there not not on the military side the more interesting actually and again it came back to conflicts with my when i was in the government uh, i spent a fair amount of time doing foreign travel around intelligence related issues because of my role in national security so i went to west berlin a number of times and a number of other countries for different reasons and and again that tended to take precedence over anything that I would have been doing with the reserves. Well, West Berlin uh, was my favourite posting ever. We went there in 1978 to 1980, pretty much two and a half years in Berlin, and it was a fantastic tour. The wall mm -hmm. was still up. Rudolf Hess was alive. We had some really, really interesting duties. We had the British military train that used to go from sort of Schlottenburg down to Brunswick. Uh, every right. day, and, and and people actually pay you to go and do that duty. <laughs> you give somebody ten marks to, to to get on that duty because it was it was it was a cracking day out. Um, yeah. yeah, we used to go over to East Berlin a lot through Checkpoint Charlie. We used to have big Opel Imperials cars, and we drive around there like big limousines. 
uh, and we go for a checkpoint, Charlie, and you pick your tail up, whether it's a East German or or it was a Russian, and they just follow you around all day, and you stop off at various places you had to visit. You know, I mean, you went to the, the the Russian museum, the the tomb, the Russian tomb of the unknown soldier. You stop at a couple of cafes, and um, and that was just sort of showing the flag. Um, and right. Back over. Right. And well, when I was at the War College, the spring term the class was divided into teams and my group, we were focusing on a deep analysis of at the time NATO. And so we spent three weeks, I want to say traveling around Western Europe, looking, uh, 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 going to different NATO facilities, receiving briefings. Um, and then uh, again, took the the night train to West Berlin, had uh, the obligatory series of briefings, and then we turned in our government passports for civilian passports, and got on a tourist bus, and we had a tour guide, and the bus driver was GRU. I mean, he was you know, clearly an intelligence, East German intelligence. And we spent five or six days driving around East Germany on this tour bus. And I remember uh, seeing the East German countryside and, and the, the, the dramatic difference between East Germany and West Germany at the time. And in Leipzig, we stayed at a what they called a Deutschmark hotel because if you were in East German and you were able to come across Western currency, the only place you could turn it in or buy anything with it was at the Deutschmark Hotel. Yeah. And normally in a very nice hotel, you go into the gift shop and there's jewelry and watches and scarves and handbags and that sort of stuff. Well, they had um, drill bits and uh, faucets <laughs> were in the display cases in the gift shop because if you were an East German and you wanted to get a toaster, if you wanted to get any, you know, anything from the West, like a toaster that actually worked, you went to the Deutschmark hotel and turned in your currency to get it. Uh, it was a, it was a bit of a shock. It's a bit, a bit of a shock. Well, say we used to drive down through what we called the corridor from Potsdam to uh, to Brunswick, and um, and when we used to go through Checkpoint Charlie to go into East Berlin, it, for us it was like going from a colour film to a black and white film yeah. in sepia. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just and 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 what I, what shocked me at the time, of course, this was the eighties, was the amount of war damage from the Second World War that still existed. So when we drove through Dresden, uh, the, the old, uh, uh, Royal, Royal, uh, residence, whatever, whatever it was called, I forget the name of it. It was a pile of rubble. Mm. Uh, and there were trees growing up through it. And, uh, it was just shocking, uh, how evident, how, how, near that history was you you could feel it yeah. in a way that in the west it it had become history you know but here it was very much present well it's because they hadn't rebuilt a lot of it yeah yeah 
Um, and it was your fault. I mean, you did it. You, you yeah. flattened Dresden. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you've only got yourself... Along with a number of other cities. <laughs> <laughs> so, so moving on then from, uh, from the National um, Intelligence Agency and the CIA... Uh, that word must have been quite interesting at times. It was. It was also very frustrating. Uh, it, it, obviously, you, you you can't necessarily talk about it, but the 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 challenges of getting people to pay attention to the right things and resourcing was always always a concern. I, I remember I remember at one point uh, when I was at the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is in the Department of Defense and focuses on military intelligence. One of the, I was the, actually, I was the legal advisor to what is, was known as the DOD human manager. And, and he was responsible for all human intelligence activities undertaken by the Department of Defense. And, and I was his lawyer. And I remember one of the officers commenting that the Warsaw Pact uh, intelligence uh, resources outnumbered us six to one, eight to one, something like that, boots on the ground. And, and of course, that was very troubling. But then he said, well, but the good news is that probably three quarters of the resources is devoted to following their own people around. <laughs> it's funny as you say about um, being a league ad. My, one of my jobs was I spent 10 years in psychological operations and everything we did um, had to go through a process. So I had to go to the legal officer, the political officer, before it could get passed down the chain to the, the commander to sign off. Mm-hmm. So lots of, the, lots of times I had to go to, to, to the legal officer, explain why we've done a particular product and, and the way we've done it that way is to be able to add this type of influence on the target audience. And we didn't do it right. that way because it wouldn't work. So yeah, for, our, for a short period of time, I had legal oversight of all human clandestine operations directed against the Warsaw Pact. In some respects, it ruined my civilian career. And, and I, I say that because when you're doing that kind of work, I was never in harm's way. There were people on on these projects and activities that were in harm's way. Uh, they were doing things uh, cross border that, if they had been caught, it, it would have been serious repercussions for them. After you do that for a while, it, it, the, you know the the phone rings, or at the time I had a beeper. The beeper goes off and you jump out of your, your skin because you, you want to make sure that nothing horrible has happened. Then you leave government service and you go to, let's say, General Electric is where I first worked. Yeah. And the general counsel for whom I worked uh, was very impressed with himself. And um, at different points, he would try to impress upon me what you're working on, this is very important. And my reaction was, this is, I'm making washing machines and refrigerators. It's an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. It'll be on my desk in the morning. What I used to work on, that was important. <laughs> this, not so much. You know? <laughs> and so I, I, I was, I, I think, uh, continuously 
berated for not being taking my job seriously enough uh, because I, I simply couldn't. <laughs> uh, I had a conversation yesterday with a, um, a Falklands vet and we were saying exactly the same sort of thing. He, he was down to Falklands um, on a ship. Uh, they came back. They went into Portsmouth. They had a refit. And then they were sent straight out onto an exercise up in Norway. And it just wasn't the same as being on operations. <laughs> Somebody wasn't yeah. trying to shoot at you and stuff like that. So, and, and lots of guys in, in, in the military join the military to go on operations when they come back off of operations, normal normal units and then go off on a normal sort of an exercise and get totally disillusioned and put the papers in and leave. Right. Because they don't get the same buzz out of what they get on the operations where where their life's in danger. So it's obvious it's the same sort of thing. Well and there's there's a gravitas. I mean there's there's a a, a seriousness of purpose uh that uh, you know I wouldn't you know Certainly, it's a jolt, but it focuses the mind. Uh, you know, you're doing something that has a consequence, as opposed to look, guys, we're building washing machines and refrigerators. You know, they'll be there tomorrow. Nobody's going to die over this. Uh, you know, relax. <laughs> oh well, it's courses for courses, isn't it? Yeah, great. So. General Electrics. So where, where did you move on after that? I was at uh, GE for four or five years. And we we were living, my wife and I, we had uh, three kids. And we were living in uh, Kentucky, which is sort of the along the Mississippi River in the central, central part of the country. Interestingly enough, I wanted to send my two sons to the school that I had attended back in Ohio, the private school I had gone to. So I left General Electric and worked for a competitor, AB Electrolux, uh, also an appliance manufacturer, and because they happened to have their North American headquarters back in Cleveland, which was in the area where my... So, so I left GE to move back to, to uh, Ohio uh, exclusively for the purpose of sending our two boys to the school. And they both did graduate uh, from, from that high school. And after spending uh, a number of years with Electrolux, I changed, I simply within the Cleveland area changed to uh, Lubrizol, which is this specialty chemical company. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, because of Lubrizol, uh, they have Lubrizol has one of their major facilities outside of Darby, and so I, I've spent a considerable amount of time uh, in England, going back and forth. I had some people who worked for me who were in Darby, and uh, got to the point where I could drive a stick shift uh, <laughs> on the wrong side of the road <laughs> without killing anybody that I will admit to. <laughs> Excellent. So it, uh, it takes a bit of doing. <laughs> well, you've got to pay attention. <laughs> you know what? You don't want to sort of lapse back into automatic because it, you know it won't work. So. <laughs> it, it's that sudden sudden relaxation. You <laughs> you put your foot on the brake and you're still in gear. <laughs> yes. 
what I, what I found interesting is I was scared to death of having this because I normally uh, I I driven a I've had a Mini Cooper for years and uh, driving a stick where I'm shifting with my right and then going to England and shifting yeah. with my left. I thought that was going to be the issue, and the shift wasn't it. It was steering with my right hand, because normally I steer with my left. That was the awkward thing, was steering, and I'm waving around. <laughs> Brilliant. So that kind of brings us up to date then. Uh, about three years ago, I retired from Lubrizol, and during the course of the past 15, 15 years, on the side, I would teach strategic planning type courses at a number of the universities in the uh, Ohio area. Um, and since I've retired, we moved down here. We now live in North Carolina, closer uh, to the ocean, um, simply so that we can, we've got nine grandchildren and I've got three of them in Northern Virginia. Three of them are just a couple hours north of us. That's where I'm sitting now. And uh, we've got four and we've got two down in uh, Florida. And I can now get to all three sets of grandchildren without having to get on an airplane. Because uh, <laughs> I spent, I, I have over a million miles flying on United Airlines alone just from, you know, business yeah. travel. And if, if I don't have to get on another airplane ever again, I'll be very happy. I'm exactly the same. The, uh, the Army put me off flying. <laughs> flying yeah. into places where it's, it goes totally dark and you're doing a tactical landing in, in the dark and, it, and they're throwing the thing around or they'll stick you on a helicopter to go up country somewhere where there's some real hostiles that's likely to shoot you. It takes the fun out of flying a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just found, frankly, uh, over the years, people uh, on airplanes have become so rude so impolite, uh, uh, boorish, uh, that uh, it's taken, you know, all the joy out of uh, travel for me. Um, and, and uh, again, if I'm, if I'm in my car, I, I'm, I'm a classic American. I drive everywhere. Okay? <laughs> Excellent. So you kind of now retired, you do a little bit of lecturing, um, I, I retired myself in 2018, um, <laughs> so, so this is what I've got into. Well, you know, it's funny. The reason I, I started doing, uh, I've been doing a number of these podcasts, and of course, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, so all of this technology is, is hard for me to handle. I, I have to get my grandchildren to work it out for me. Um, but I, I did spend the past 40, 50 years you know, dealing with uh, uh, both in the military, national security, and in corporate America, thing, I, and I, and I go back to when I was figuring I had a career because there was always going to be a Cold War. Yeah, and then all of a sudden we won. <laughs> uh, it really demonstrated for me the uncertainty of life and the need to plan to do good planning, to think strategically about the future. And I've been mulling that over for the past 40 years. And that's when I finally retired. I had the time and the leisure to actually write the book that I wrote. 
Um, and it's, it's arguing that there are, I'll give you the short version. I would argue that as a species, we are entering what I'll call our fourth age. Our first age was from about 200,000 years ago, 200,000 BC, to about 10,000 BC, and we were hunter-gatherers. From 10,000 BC to, I'll say, 1785, we were farmers and herders, primarily. Now, I picked 1785 because that's when steam-powered industry uh, steam engines became commercially available in England that were reliable. So it was beginning of the industrial age. The third age was the industrial age from about 1785, and I picked 2020 as sort of the endpoint, is when we made things, we manufactured. And I'm arguing that we are in the process of entering uh, an entirely new and different fourth age that's driven by two sets of disruptions that over that time from 200,000 years ago, the rate and the degree of change have accelerated to the point now where it's, it's going like this. On the societal side, when you think about demographics, for the first time ever, more people live in cities than in the country. Everybody's worried about population explosion. When you look at the UN data, even the UN says that by the end of the century, the world's population is going to peak and then start to decline. But there are a lot of demographic experts who are pointing out that because we now live in cities, our populations are going to decline. We're going to peak and decline sooner, several billion people less than what's expected. And in fact, at the present time, Half of the countries of the world aren't reproducing. They're below population reproduction levels. Eastern Europe, Japan, South Korea are forecast to lose 40% of their population. 95% of the UN's population growth forecast, 95% of that is all Africa. Mm. The only countries that look to be holding their own from a population standpoint, are the Anglo-Saxon countries, United Kingdom, Ireland, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, in part because our reproduction levels are a little bit higher, but also because that's where everybody wants to move. <laughs> yeah. Don't we know it? Yeah. I don't know if you see it on your news, but we've got a problem with illegal migrants crossing yeah. the English Channel. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's a big deal here in the states. You know, illegal migration over the border from Mexico. But but the point is, everybody's worried. All of our policy people are thinking about a world of increasing population. Nobody's thinking about a world of decreasing population, and that's the near future. And once those populations start decline, they don't stop. That's a pretty profound change. Now, layer on top of that, uh, some other interesting demographic facts. The Chinese have already topped out their population, and, and, and they're beginning to decline. They're getting older. But because of their one-child policy, which was in place for a generation, there are now 25 million Chinese men 
for which there are no Chinese women. Because during that one child policy, people preferred to having male babies over female babies. Now, in India, for different cultural reasons, the same thing has happened, preferring male babies over female babies to the point where it's not 25 million, it's 80 million Indian men for which there are no Indian women. If you want to talk about political destabilization, (laughs) that's an awful lot of testosterone out there with nothing to do. So we are looking at a world that on the demographic societal side is uh, destabilizing. And on the technological side, we have so many disruptive technologies, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology new materials, cheap, ubiquitous, off-grid energy, just to name a few, that are all coming together at the same time. And I would argue what they're doing is they are taking that third age model of mass production, Mm. and they are obsolescing it. We are going from a world of where relatively few are making thousands to a world of where thousands are making a few. The ability to customize local production efficiently, cost-effectively, is being enabled by all of these technologies. And so the whole business model that we've had for the past, since 1785, everybody's planning around that so here's the troubling fact. There's a, there was a Swedish gentleman, passed away a couple of years ago, Hans Rosling, wrote a book two, three years ago. And, and in it, what he was describing was what he discovered about the state of knowledge among uh, people of the world. Uh, he first interviewed, had a, did a survey at Davos of our sort of ruling elite. And then he went on and interviewed people, I want to say, gee, 12,000 people in 17 countries. And he had a 13-question survey. And each question had three possible answers, A, B, C. The net result was, as he put it, if you had had a troop of monkeys randomly taking this test, they would have randomly assigned all three equally. 33%. Our population as a whole doesn't know the state of the world. These questions about what's the state of uh, child education globally, what's the state of poverty, what's the state of urbanization, these are basic strategic issues. The population, and especially the ruling elite at Davos, scored worse than a troop of monkeys. (laughs) Now, if these are the people that are setting our policies and they don't know the facts, they're assuming that the world is something other than what it really is, then it's no surprise that we're seeing the dissatisfaction that we we see in our politics these days. Mm. And so the gist of the book, and I'm writing it for my grandchildren is to raise these issues, and I've just sort of hit the top of, of some of them, uh, but to raise these, I'm, I'm no genius, I'm no prophet, but I do know how to do strategic planning. I do know how to do scenario planning. 
the the point I'm making in the book is, you know, we're we're looking at the wrong things. We're worrying about the wrong things. We need to get the facts right, and we need to think about these trends, both societal and technological. And here's the ultimate reason why. I'm going to go back 200,000 years. I would argue that we all are driven by instinct. And I've picked four. The first of which is, as a species, we are afraid of everything. Everything scares us to death. That's what we learned 200,000 years ago. You know, so it's going to eat me. And when we are afraid, we tend to overreact violently. We do this all the time. Second thing, we discovered that our ability to find a mate to pass on our genes and to survive is improved when we live in groups. So we are very societal animals. We spend about 20% of every day socializing in one form or another. Now, 200,000 years ago, that 20% was spent picking fleas out of your neighbor's fur. We don't do that anymore, but we're still constantly socializing. So we live in groups. Three, within a group, we will do anything to improve our status because that means we're likely to get a better mate and we improve our chances of surviving. So we will lie, cheat, steal, whatever, to move up that pyramid. Fourth, we are curious. Now, it's not in any kind of BBC special version of we're you know, wondering about the universe. We are curious about what's over the hill, and we want to know about it because we don't want it to eat us. That's why we're curious. We want to... It goes back to the fearful thing, okay? I would argue that those instincts drive everything that we do. There's traditional psychological view that we have our modern rational brain and our back primitive brain, and the purpose of the rational brain is to keep that primitive brain under control so it doesn't do anything crazy. Well, the best current thinking on that says, really, the purpose of the rational modern brain is to come up with a very good story to tell to our group about why it is we're going to do what our primitive brain wants us to do. So we're really driven by instincts. Mm. Now, over the past 200,000 years, as we evolved and developed societies and cultures, we developed a set of tools and, and processes and, and social mores to help guide us so that we're not killing each other constantly. But here is the problem with the fourth age. If you think about any child who has existed since the 200,000 years ago, 7,000 generations, something like that, that child could look at their parents and their grandparents and say, my life is going to look something like what their lives look like. It may be a little bit different. But if they were farmers, I'm going to be a farmer. If they were a laborer, I'm going to be a laborer. Uh, and and I, I can use that as a template to figure out what the future is going to look like for me. So I'm not scared of it as much. Well, I would argue with all of the disruptions that I mentioned, kids today, I can't. there's nothing I can tell as a baby boomer, my grandchildren, about how I grew up, the world I lived in. In, uh, that I was describing to you, that's going to have any value <laughs> to help them cope 
with a world we simply can't even imagine going forward. If they're on their own and they got to try and figure out living in a world that we simply can't imagine because it's changing so quickly, they're going to fall back on those instincts. And if you're, if it's chaotic and you become fearful, we overreact violently. <laughs> I, think, I think we've had a, a pretty good demonstration of that fear factor over the last couple of years with mm-hmm. this pandemic that we've had. The, yep. the, the, the governments around the world have been instilling fear into the population, and now we're coming to effectively the end of it, and, and now the government's got the bigger problem of trying to convince people that it's okay to take masks in public. It's okay to go and mix somewhere. You're not going to die from this unless you're over 80. <laughs> well, you know, what I find fascinating here in the States is the fear of the vaccination, yeah. that the, the significant percentage of the population refuses to be vaccinated and I think back to, okay, when you were growing up, didn't you receive, you know, uh, um, countless vaccinations as a child for measles, mumps, chicken pox, and some really nasty diseases that don't exist anymore because of those vaccinations? And that was okay, and you were comfortable and confident, but now you're afraid? And it's and it's it's troubling. I think it comes down to that fear factor again. Yeah. The, the government's put this this fear factor in, and people don't trust them anymore. And that's I think that's the biggest problem. Trust well, and given out. the fact that they don't know the facts, yeah, that they're operating off of the wrong information. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's good reason to be a little concerned. Yeah. So anyway, Terry, what's what's the title of your book? Is it published yet? It is. Uh, the title of the book is Our Fourth Age, A Village Elder's Story for Young Hominis Sapientes About Their Future History. And it's on Amazon in the UK. Now, and Is it on Audible? Yes, it is. So is Paperback, it- Audible, and Hardback. Now, in the title, I've used homines sapientes, and you're going to say, well, what does that mean? Homo sapiens. And I used it as as a lesson. In the original draft, I had young homo sapiens, and then I sent a draft to a number of professors to, to comment. One of them was a classics professor. Uh, I think he actually did the seminal translation of the ancient Sumerian Gilgamesh epic. Okay, it's a really classic professor guy. And he immediately came back and corrected me, and he said, well, actually, Homo sapiens is singular. The plural is homines sapientes. That's the proper Latin. And I stuck that in just as a demonstration of, and I, I footnoted the explanation. It's a classic case of we think we know something and we're wrong. Because everybody says homo sapiens. Everybody thinks that's the plural. Well, we say it's, 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 it's homo sapiens. 
Yeah, it's it's a classic case of you think you know something and you don't. Uh, and that's that's exactly what we're facing uh, is is the the wrong information. We got <laughs> got to get to the right information. But it's available on Amazon in the UK. Fantastic. I'll put that in the uh, in the descriptions box below. Thank you. So, thank you. That has been fascinating. That's been a brilliant, brilliant chat. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad I had a good time. You actually uh, got me to go down memory lane on uh, several topics that I had <laughs> That's what it's all about. It is. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next one. Thank you.